Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's episode, Ryan Bailey is in Vegas, pretending to still enjoy Bono and U2, which means I'll be hosting this iteration of the TSS Weekend Review. Against Liverpool, Arsenal earned themselves three points and also a statement win, which caused Mikel Arteta to alternately rage and smile and rage again, but eventually grin. Newcastle scored four, and Luton somehow did two, while Wolves' thumping of Chelsea has Potch feeling blue. On the continent, Inter's midfield had Inzaghi's men humming, while Juve's lack of attack was anything but stunning. In Spain, we've got a title race back on, or so it seems, despite La Real temporarily dashing Girona's silver dreams. But Real and Atleti battled to a 1-1 Madrid derby draw, setting up a top-of-the-table clash that will hopefully leave us all in awe. It was AFCON drama for host nation Ivory Coast, whose last-minute winner turned Mali's dreams to toast. However, three suspended players in the next knockout round could have Le Elephant come crashing back to ground. To the semifinal Final round, Nigeria, DR Congo, and South Africa all advanced, with goalkeeper Ronwen Williams leaving opposition penalty takers entranced. The World Cup draw TV show had Kevin Hart counting checks. Gianni Infantino's wardrobe made Graham Ruffin feel perplexed. Yes, our Graham watched the World Cup draw and was feeling a little blue, particularly regarding presidential hoodie suits and flawless all-white shoes. Hi, Graham Ruffin, your hoodie suit is in the mail. Hello, Taylor. Well, I was going to ask you, uh, I see you chose not to wear your suit hoodie combo today, which is weird because you're right. I did watch that show last night. What a missed opportunity. I thought, does Taylor know Gianni's copied his drip? I mean, I'm sure I'm I'm, I'm assuming that's where he's uh, he's got that look from. It was a strange look. We can leave it there, I think. Was it stranger that look or that Kevin Hart was involved in the World Cup draw show? Well, because when you've got a World Cup schedule yep. to announce, mm-hmm. you just got to get Kevin Hart to, to be there too, and Kim <laughs> Kardashian, and Drake, of course. It's just what you got to do. Uh, we're going to talk a bit more about the World Cup draw in the Patreon episode, but rounding out the crew today is our West Coast man and yours, which benefits him in 2026 when the U.S. men won't be leaving those distant yes. shores. It's Los Angeles, Seattle, and Los Angeles for the U.S. national team. Suitable locations for the one and only Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Congrats <laughs> on bringing the draw. Um, I am I am very very happy that the US will be mm-hmm. playing in my general neck of the woods. General is doing a lot of heavy lifting in that sentence, but Phil, I'm hoping that the US do eventually end up playing outside of the West Coast and and maybe even playing in the Northeast as they make a deep run in that competition. Time will tell. Um, Graham, I have a lot of respect for you, as I do, Taylor, for your intro, which was fantastic, by the way. Graham, I have a lot of respect for you for many reasons. Um, your work ethic your ability to generate memes that immediately get ripped off with no credit by men in blazers and many other aggregator (laughs) accounts that I curse on social media. Grandma, I also respect you 
for the fact that you actually sat through and watched that World Cup draw show. Kim, I'm not did sure you watch? respect is the word. No, 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 That's no, no, no. Hold masochism. On. Hold that on. is masochism. It is, it is something that I respect. Taylor, you might not be wrong. I respect it because I was never, ever Fair. going yeah. to watch that show yesterday. <laughs> and Grim, without you and, of course, social media doing some of the heavy lifting for us, we wouldn't know about all the weird stuff that happened on that show. So, Graham Ruffin, thank you for powering through it. You are a true soldier, a true hero, and I respect it. Thanks, uh, Joe. I'm not entirely sure that it was worth it, frankly. It was the nope. worst thing that FIFA worth has it, ever done. And it. I'm not forgetting about the corruption and all the, <laughs> other, all the other stuff. This was utterly bizarre. And it was honestly just like Gianni Infantino wanting to invite some famous people along so he could hang out. And they kind of forgot that they had uh, some stadiums to announce and the final to announce, but... Yeah, I'm, I'm going to need some time to recover from that show. For someone who watched absolutely none of it, Graham, uh, w- like what was the vibe? What were the conversations being had? Was Kevin Hart like chiming in to talk about the expanded format and his excitement for no. the three-team group? No? Shocking. <laughs> he was chiming in on how to, how to pronounce Toronto, which I think Canadians will say like Toronto, like they'll drop the second T. And uh, it was just very bizarre. It was the vibes I would describe as morning TV show vibes like the today show sitting on a sofa talking about a bunch of stuff that it's just kind of bubblegum tv and i'm sitting there going and i think everyone on twitter as well is going get announce some stadiums tell us the schedule even when they did the schedule they didn't do it very well and it wasn't very clear what games were happening where uh yeah it was a it was a peculiar hour and a half hour and a half as well an hour and a half is how long it lasted (laughs) Uh, my tradition for watching the Today Show is to only watch it when I'm a captive audience while the oil in my car is being changed and I'm waiting for that to happen <laughs> and it's what's on television. Maybe that's the best way to watch a World Cup draw. Uh, but Graham, when we're talking about maybe calamitous things that are also quite important, that also feels like a good way to talk about Arsenal's win over Liverpool because mm. it was a very high quality game that also had some ridiculous goals uh, allowed. <laughs> Yeah, it was like 88 minutes of high-quality soccer and then two (laughs) minutes of complete nonsense uh, from both teams. One nonsense goal for Liverpool and one nonsense goal for for Arsenal. In general, if we're talking about the game, I I thought Arsenal were quite clearly the the stronger team over the 90 minutes. Liverpool had a, a good period at the start of the second half where it felt like they were maybe turning the match around after getting that fortunate equaliser just before half time. But then we had the uh, the Alison Van Dyke uh, blunder, which the British tabloids are gleefully calling Alison Blunderlands, which is one of the better uh, tabloid headlines <laughs> I've heard. Oh, oh no. And, yeah. I hate how much I like uh, that. <laughs> yeah, same. And then after that, the kind of momentum swung back towards uh, uh, Arsenal. So out of 90 minutes, it, it felt like Arsenal controlled about 70 minutes of it. They created the better opportunities. They certainly won the midfield battle, which I found really interesting. We can go into greater depth on that later on. The balance of their team felt better and even Klopp after, afterwards was pretty candid in, in admitting Liverpool were, were second best so it's a great result for Arsenal of course it keeps them in the title race had they lost this game you'd be getting to the point of counting them out of contention and it's a great result for the neutral who just wants an exciting title race i.e. i.e. me uh, because it bunches up the top of the table again there's just two points between Liverpool and Arsenal and if City win their two game- games in hand they'll be ahead by one point. So there could be three points between the top three with 15 matches left, which feels like a good place to start the final home stretch of a, of a good entertaining title race. Indeed, indeed. And a good place to start uh, for Joe Lavery to talk about Arsenal for a moment, because we can talk about some of the calamitous goals that occurred, but we should also maybe heap some praise on Arsenal for the way they played this one. 
Really unf- unfortunate, I think, that they are uh, in a one-to-one draw at halftime, given how yeah. strong they were. Uh, but then they end up, I think, getting the result that felt appropriate. I could not believe how sharp Arsenal were early on in this game. We spent some of last week's weekend review talking about Jurgen Klopp, obviously after the announcement that he was not going to come back for another season with Liverpool. And one of the things that we touched on in sort of that little Jurgen Klopp retrospective was how incredibly good Liverpool have been for years and are this year against the ball. Right, they play out of this four-three-three, you know, four-one-four-one kind of shape. They're aggressive. They're well drilled, even when they're not all the way with the pedal to the metal, which they are quite often. Like Liverpool started this game, and were completely outclassed by what Arsenal were trying to do on the ball, and that is really, really hard to do. You look at the runners. You look at the energy that Liverpool have in this team. The midfield that they've taken care to rebuild over the last couple of transfer windows. The forward line. Really the same with Luis Diaz on one side, Diego Jota through the middle, and Cody Gakpo on the on the right side kind of tucking in in possession. Like, Arsenal just played those guys off the field. And the best example, this is the cliche to always point to the goals, but I don't think anyone out there would argue with the best example of Arsenal's buildup in this game coming on the first goal that Saka scores in the 14th minute. It is such careful deliberate, intentional attacking play from really from back to front. There's a little bit of fortune in the box that that it ends up at Saka's feet. But like, it is such a good sequence of Arsenal systematically pulling, you know, Jota forward, then pulling Gravenberg forward, and then pulling Curtis Jones forward, and then pulling the full, like, and it ends with Virgil van Dijk after you go through basically all of the players in Liverpool's outfield. It ends with Virgil van Dijk getting pulled into midfield and Arsenal just playing right in beyond. It's a fantastic first touch from uh, first time through ball, really, from Martin Odegaard to play Kai Havertz in behind, and then it ends with Saka having the ball in the back of the net. It is one of the best bits of buildup that I've seen in a really, really long time, and to do it against Liverpool, a team that is so good playing against the ball most often, like, man, Arsenal were good to begin this game. I want to talk about Kai Havertz for a moment, Graham, because uh, as Joe just outlined there and then very generously did not throw Havertz under the bus. Havertz is played in, and then Saka scores because Havertz hits a right <laughs> at the goalkeeper. It, it spills to Saka, who then scores. But at the same time, Havertz has a lot of influence in this game, and it's one where I feel like I haven't even looked up the stats, but I'm going to guess statistically it would seem like a not particularly strong game. I felt like he did so many things off the ball and on the ball to make a difference for this Arsenal team. I'm wondering where you are on his performance. Yeah, absolutely. I am very warm on his performance in this game. You're right. He When when he breaks through on goal, it's, it's not a particularly good conversion. It's a, a decent height save for, for Alisson to, to, to make. But I look at how he really affected the midfield battle in this game. There's been so much talk about the Liverpool midfield rebuild and and how that has bedded in so quickly, and that is true. But in this game, it was Arsenal who had the better of this area in this match. And uh, Kai Havertz was the key to that. So he starts as the centre forwards, but in build-up play, he would drop deep to create like a box midfield. And that was pulling along the same lines of what Joe was talking about with the first goal. That was pulling the Liverpool centre-backs apart. It created overloads, and it's how Arsenal create the, the channel for the opening goal. The other big call in the Arsenal midfield was starting Jorginho. So when this team first gets published, it's your, your eye is obviously drawn to the, the notable names, the names that maybe you wouldn't expect to see in the team. One of them is Kai Havertz, the other one is Jorginho. And having him in there with Declan Rice... It just gave Arsenal a way to play through the the Liverpool press, and and Arsenal did a, a much better job of moving it through their midfield than than Liverpool, who just couldn't get that going. Dominic Schobeslai was was missing, so we should mention his absence, and maybe he might have made a, a difference in a creative attacking sense. But with the exception of Alexis McAllister, it just never felt like Liverpool's midfield was able to 
to have an influence. And and afterwards, what was quite interesting was um, Jurgen Klopp was asked by Sky Sports about the decision to start Darwin Nunes on the bench and whether that was a mistake because Liverpool were never able to get that midfield unit going and so a plan B might have been to go a little bit more direct, a little bit quicker. We've seen it before with Van Dijk into normally Mohamed Salah, who of course is out injured still after after AFCON, or Darwin Nunes. And without that option, it felt like Liverpool, they couldn't progress to the midfield and they couldn't really go direct either very often. Darwin Nunes, of course, does come off the bench, but by that point, Liverpool are chasing the game and the game phases against them. So I think Liverpool, uh, excuse me, Mikel Arteta and Arsenal, they got their team selection correct. And maybe there were some things that went against Liverpool in their team selection to match up. I do think you have the one goal for Liverpool coming from them going direct. But even there, it's a little bit of a calamitous situation. I would argue that's individual mistakes from Arsenal, less so Liverpool's overall game plan working. And so I think it was a a comprehensively good performance from Arsenal, even if they do uh, let that goal happen, even if it is one-to-one at halftime. But uh, Graham, you outlined it there. I thought Havertz was good. I think you were very warm on his performance. I would echo that. Same goes for Martin Odegaard, who once again is just ridiculously good and has passing vision that isn't fair. Jorginho in the midfield was a surprise to me. Seeing him in a more advanced position when Arsenal were trying to press, also a big surprise for me. But when I think you have Declan Rice, who can cover so much ground, become a third center back as needed, step out as needed, track runners, really limit anything through the middle. It just felt like a really nice combination, Joe. That's at least where I'm coming from, where I look at this Arsenal midfield and the overall team display. Yeah, I I enjoyed so much of what Arsenal brought in midfield. It wasn't... We've seen Mikel Arteta go to different versions of a back three quite often throughout his time in charge of Arsenal, moving Zinchenko into midfield, and Zinchenko did start this game at left back, keeping Ben White back on the right side as a third center back. And we saw some of that in this game, but the dominant, like most impactful shape for Arsenal in this match was a four triple two. It was a double pivot with Jorginho and and Declan Rice at the base of midfield. And then you had Odegaard and Havertz dropping in to sort of form this attacking midfield two. And then especially in build up, you would have Saka and Martinelli higher and a little bit wider as a front two. And that alignment works really, really well. They isolated consistently Alexis McAllister at the base of Liverpool's midfield. And Liverpool, to sort of the discussion we've already had, didn't seem to have a ton of answers. Yeah, they get they get that goal right before the first half whistle um, is, is blown. And they, they managed to get back in this game. And I actually thought they were decent to start the second half as well. I thought they created some chances. They started to take advantage of the width a little bit more. I mentioned Arsenal set up in possession for, for Liverpool in this game. I don't know if you guys noticed this, but to me it looked like it was sort of a 2-2-2-4 shape for Liverpool in possession, where it wasn't Trent Alexander-Arnold drifting into midfield. No, he was staying high and wide on that right side. It was Joe Gomez inverting from left back to then be the the partner for McAllister in midfield. And and we've talked about the absences for Liverpool. I couldn't help but wonder if that was another part of them struggling to break through. Joe Gomez is a good soccer player. I I just don't think he's the guy that you really want to rely on to help you progress the ball. And and McAllister's still learning that deep-lying midfield role as well. It felt like between injuries and some of the specific rotations that Liverpool went for in this game... And then, of course, Allison Blunderland, who it seems like every time we go deep on a Liverpool game, Taylor, like uh-huh. Allison does something calamitous and it makes I it harder and harder. It. I know. I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> I wouldn't blame you if you did, Taylor, because last time we talked about it, I think it was yeah. in that Chelsea game, right? I was like, oh, yeah. you know, this is a once in a season kind of thing. Uh, I would like to amend that statement to a twice in a season. Also, like he was really at fault for both goals in large part that Arsenal scored in the second half. So maybe three times a season. But man, Liverpool, it felt like, you know, maybe didn't quite have enough juice to get back in this one in the second half. 
I do wonder how um, Connor Bradley's availability might have changed the the Liverpool midfield structure. So Co- Connor Bradley, he was um, unavailable for this match after the the death of his father um, during the week. But he has he's been sensational at right back these past few matches, and he comes into the team initially because Alexander Arnold has an injury. But during the week the week there, Connor Bradley just starts at right back for Liverpool because he's been better than Alexander Arnold at right back and I'm not saying he's a better player it's just he's in better form right now so I do wonder if he starts on the right side of Liverpool defence does that make Martinelli's life a little bit trickier because in the wide areas Arsenal were having a lot of joy down that side through Martinelli and even on the other side with Joe Gomez as you as you say um, Joe coming centrally that was creating a lot of space for, for Saka as he likes to do to, to isolate one on one I do wonder if Connor Bradley starts on the right side of the defence maybe that pushes Alexander-Arnold into central midfield that might help their issues with with, uh, with the build up phase and, and playing through midfield so I, I mentioned earlier think some things went against Liverpool and that was another one was maybe not having Connor Bradley to, to, to um, kind of flesh out that defensive line a little bit more uh, but in the end it's a win for Arsenal and uh, one of my favorite like themes from this weekend, or my themes from this weekend, was managers losing their minds at their players while telling them to be calm. And this was a great moment of that. A couple of different times, you could see Arteta screaming at players to stay calm, and it reminded me of like <laughs> the scene in old school, like this is no time to freak out. Like I think I don't know if that really conveys the calm energy that you're looking for there. Uh, Simon Inzaghi as well had a few like screaming comma as loud as possible with like veins bulging. I don't know if that conveys the sense of calm and chill that maybe they're going for, but maybe it does because Arsenal ended up uh, getting the win, getting three points, and I think this is a really important statement win for them, another big one for this season, and uh, maybe bigger things on the horizon for them. We shall see. Yep. I, I would echo all of that. One more beat from me on Allison in this game because, you know, <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I think everybody knows I like to dig into the tactical <laughs> stuff and we've done a, a decent amount of that already. Like tactics are important. Yes. Uh, tactics often fall second to individual moments of brilliance or individual moments of absolute chaos. And Allison certainly had one of the, the worst goalkeeping blunders I've seen so far this season in the Premier League. It's, uh, I mean, he just completely comes off his line and whiffs on a ball that he's trying to clear with his feet. Maybe Van Dyke has it handled, maybe he doesn't. I don't mind Allison coming for that, but if you're going to go for it, you absolutely have to make contact. He doesn't. It is a big mistake. Martinelli then has an open net to fire a shot into. And then the, the third goal that Arsenal scores, it's Leandro Trossard in second half stoppage time. Allison just gets beaten between his legs at the near post, and it's, it's not a good look. It's less of an obvious, oh my goodness, I cannot believe you've done this moment. But it is still a, a really poor piece of goalkeeping that takes whatever little chance Liverpool had to get back into this match in its dying moments. It, it, it took those chances and completely obliterated them. So a game that Allison will very much want to forget, as will Liverpool. Yeah, one one thing that I did like about the the blunder for the second Arsenal goal was that there was no screaming from Van Dijk or Allison afterwards. There's a little like tap of the hand. They both look at each other like, yeah, that that's not us like we we're not we don't usually do that and so I don't know I just like that respect between the two they're not screaming at each other one's not blaming the other it was just it was Allison's a weird fault. moment <laughs> it's Allison's fault a lot of people actually I think would say it was Van Dyke's fault I would agree what would okay. you I don't really have an opinion on it but yeah. I know a lot of people think it's Van Dyke's let's yeah. fight let's okay Taylor, keeping, go for it. I was I was gonna keep silent on it because I've been critical of Allison in the past Joe as you mentioned and he definitely deserves blame for Two of the three goals. Uh, however, I would say there are extenuating circumstances. For the third, as you said, there is that deflection. And, and at first, I thought he just held his hand up like, 
Okay, I got that wrong. Sorry, I got magged. My bad, everybody. But I think he's just sort of acknowledging, like, oh, I saw that late. The deflection killed me. Still, a goalkeeper getting magged is not a great look. But for that, the the miscommunication, what I think happens, or at least partially happens, is Virgil van Dijk is trying uh, to put off Martinelli, who's running through. And he does give him a little bit of a shove. But it's mm-hmm. not nearly strong enough of a shove to put Martinelli off. But it has the opposite effect of, I think, it sends Virgil van Dijk a little bit away from where he is meaning to go and into the path of Allison. So I think that shove for van Dijk isn't strong enough to actually cause any impact to Martinelli, but instead just disrupts his stride. It puts him into the path of Allison, and then there's the miscommunication. To your point, Joe, if you're going to come for it, though, you got to make a play. You got to get yeah. rid of that ball. So uh, there is plenty of blame for Allison, but I do point a finger at Virgil van Dijk, who I think sure. also has the deflection, right? So it's all Virgil van Dijk, is I guess what we're saying. No longer an elite center back. Uh, <laughs> Liverpool should sell him uh, for a discount. I, I like that explanation, Taylor. I think there there's absolutely something to be said for Van Dyke in that moment, who who it seems like from the angle I've watched most, does get in Allison's way. So I, I will happily apportion some blame towards Van Dyke. I just keep coming back to the fact that Fair. you're the only player who gets to do like play their own different sport yeah. while all the other players are doing their own little sport. And if you come out in that moment, even if it means like clattering through Virgil Van Dyke, I, I don't really care. You have to do something to take Martinelli off and to, to get that ball away from where it is. So I'm not saying Van Dyke covered himself in glory, but there is there's probably yeah. some blame going multiple directions there. I'd head most of it towards Allison, though. That's fair. That's fair. I do think the deflection, though, for a moment, like if you watch it again, Virgil Van Dyke definitely thinks he has the angle covered as Trussard dribbles in on goal. Uh, and, and I would also say maybe Harvey Elliott should hold his hand up for a lack of defensive effort there or a lack of a defensive acumen. Uh, but as Trissard is dribbling in, I think that Van Dyke doesn't close the angle down, thinks it's covered, then tries to close the angle down and make that last-ditch play, and that's where the deflection occurs. So maybe just a little more of a sprint. Maybe he, he would have been there to intercept that ball or block it entirely. Uh, but either way, it's still the win for Arsenal. It's still Liverpool not... Uh, really getting into the gear they needed to compete with this Arsenal team who are looking pretty strong. So credit to them. Many more Premier League games to be discussed. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll come back and round out the Premier League action back soon. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show weekend review. Graham Ruffin, let's talk Wolves for Chelsea two. That can't be right. That can't be the result. <laughs> what what's going on? Uh, no, it absolutely is right. Uh, I'll start with the Wolves side of things first because uh, they were very impressive and they have been an impressive team in general this season. Keep in mind, Gary O'Neill comes into that club, I think, two or three days before the start of the season. Mm -hmm. And so he has no right to have moulded this team and forged this team in cohesive a way as he has. Because as I say, they're they're very, very impressive. And I remember when when we did our season previews and when we got to Wolves, I raised concerns uh, about their attack. 
I'm not sure I've ever been more wrong about something in my life. <laughs> yep. And this is coming at a time when I tipped Nigeria to go out in the group stage in, in AFCON and it now looks like they might win the whole thing. Uh, Wolves' attack is very, very fun to watch and it's full of talent and it's proactive and energetic in and out of possession. And in this game, Pedro Neto was tremendous and uh, his runs into the final third are powerful and, and, and effective and Cunha did similar as well and he gave Malo Gusto nightmares um, and, and it's Gusto that gives away the penalty for the, the fourth Wolves goal. So they were they were well worth the win. For Chelsea, it was another horror show, and I could go into the performance, uh, but it was all this—it was all the, the same old things from from Chelsea that we've seen even predating Pochettino. But I actually thought the most notable thing was Pochettino's comments afterwards, where he basically put the pressure on himself. He said he could be sacked. He said patience must be running out from the ownership in me, and that it's not going well. And obviously everyone can see that Chelsea are now into I think the bottom half of the Premier League table again after last season. But it's another thing to hear a manager publicly say that. And it does kind of feel like, and I'm a sympathiser with Pochettino, I think he's a good coach, I've always liked him, but it does feel like the situation is starting to get away from yet another Chelsea manager. Or is it the brilliant situation in which he blames himself, he's really mad at himself, Todd Bowley's like, oh, it's okay, buddy, puts an arm around him, and then he's there Here's forever. a Bowley beer. See? Like, See? He does kind Joe of have that, it. like, cuddly teddy bear vibe, <laughs> yeah. Mercio Pochettino. Did you really sack him? <laughs> Daniel no. Levy did, but could Todd well, do it? Yeah, good point. All right, so, Wolves 4, Chelsea 2, not a typo. But Graham, Man United 3, West Ham nil. That is a typo, right? That can't be right either. Amazingly not. This actually <laughs> happened. And even more amazing... I thought this was the best performance I've seen from Manchester United in a long time. Possibly the best I've seen this season. There was a good level of control. The midfield was more secure. The defence, for the most part, wasn't so easy to get in behind. And there were green shoots of progress in the attack as well. Even within all that, there is a pivotal moment in the match where Maguire gets robbed. They're 1-0 up and Emerson has a golden opportunity. And when you look at West Ham's XG from this game, I would hazard a guess that a large portion of that XG comes from that chance. It is a golden opportunity and he can completely fluffs it he gets his shot all wrong his body shape is all wrong and he skies it over the bar as I say that was at 1-0 and then a minute later Man United scored their second and that completely kills the game but generally I thought it was good Rasmus Hoyland is starting to play with some confidence and Manchester United are starting to find him in good areas which wasn't happening earlier in the season I love his first goal because as soon as he has that ball he knows exactly what he's doing with it. He takes the touch to his right and then pulls the finish back into the other corner. And it's so decisive. It's quick. It's not overworked. It's excellent centre-forward play. And in general, I thought this was a match that really highlighted the young core of, of Hoyland, Garnacho, and Menu that my netted have. All three are in good form. All three have real potential and are already first-team figures at young age. And my United are in this transitional phase where there's probably going to be a good amount of reconstruction this summer, but those three need to be taken care of because there's a lot to be excited with with those uh, three players. And I thought that came to the fore in this match. And then Harry Maguire must be protected for comedy reasons, I'm assuming? Oh, of course, the most important reasons, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as far as that. Chaos reasons. Protect Harry Maguire at all costs. The shot of uh, Hoyland, Mainu, and Garnacho sitting together and celebrating oh, after so Garnacho's good. goal was a bit heartwarming for this Man United fan. So too was Casemiro's role in that first goal, where he sprints a good maybe 15 yards, dives in, wins the challenge, and kind of pokes it to Hoyland, and then Hoyland's able to score. So I liked that effort and that intensity from Manchester United, who somehow did actually get a 3-0 win. Okay, so that is real. Graham, Newcastle 4, Luton 4, that can't be real, though. Surely one of these is a typo. 
Uh, there's a common theme here. The Premier League is absolutely crazy this season and this is another thing that actually happens. A completely crazy match that swung one way and then the other. Um, I guess it would be easy to, to focus on some of the defensive failings from, from Newcastle. I think they're without a win in their last, uh, like, is it three or four home games in the league, which is very unusual for them. But I uh, I want to give some real credit to Luton and also just highlight how they have, they've given themselves a real chance of survival so obviously they'll be a bit gutted they're 4-2 up in this game they don't hold on for three points but nonetheless a point away at St James's Park against Newcastle United is, is is very very credible they've lost just one of their last nine matches in all competitions they're now out of the bottom three and Ross Barkley was for my money the best player on, on the pitch in, in in this game and he's an incredible form he's been such a catalyst for 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 them on match of the day, they were talking about like an England recall. I think England have better options in that position. But nonetheless, the fact that that's a discussion tells you how well he is playing. He's playing in this sort of deeper position for Luton, where he's given a bit more freedom to dictate play. And he's got these Scholes-esque long raking passes that he uses out to the wide areas. And then there's the same old Ross Barkley instincts where he'll drive the ball forward and, and get forward, like he did for his, his goal in this game, where he ends up in the box to, to mop up an opportunity. It's just fun to watch a a player who looked washed up reinvent his career in a kind of unexpected way and also fun to see a team like Luton who were completely written off at the start of the season including by myself and I don't think people realise to the, the extent to which they are overachieving at the moment they have the lowest budget in the Premier League if they were in the Championship this season they would have the lowest budget in the Championship they have a League One budget and they are they have a realistic chance of staying up at the Premier League this season so I love their storyline, and at this point, I want them. I want them to stay up. I hope they do it. All right. So Newcastle four, Luton four actually happened. Villa five, Sheffield United nil. No, that feels real. Graham, that feels realistic. <laughs> We're back on track. Yeah, that that feels predictable. Obviously, this looks bad for Sheffield United, and it was a bad result. And uh, I don't think there's any chance they turn it around this season. I think they're nailed on to go down. But honestly, watching this match, and I did watch this match, not particularly because I was looking forward to it, it was just on a, at a convenient time for me, I thought Villa were just absolutely <laughs> outstanding, especially in the opening 30 minutes when they were 4-0 up. Some of the finishes were absolutely ridiculous. Shots were flying into the top corner and, and Villa were so incisive on the counter. And Sheffield United did give Villa a lot of space to break into and that didn't help them. But this was a really emphatic response from Villa after that bad Newcastle result during the week where they lost 3-1 at home and this lifts them back up into uh, top, the top four and they're certainly in contention for a Champions League spot. And Graham, if we're back on track with realistic results, are you putting Everton to Tottenham 2 in that same category? Yeah, I think so. It wasn't hugely surprising that this match panned out the way that it did, or at least it wasn't surprising that Everton scored their two goals in the way that they did because you have the most effective um, attacking set-piece team in the Premier League this season in Everton. And a Tottenham team that have been a bit of a soft touch defending set-pieces. Everton were definitely targeting Vicario, who doesn't always look very strong defending crosses into his area. I can't remember the game during the week he conceded. Uh, that was against Manchester City in, in the FA Cup, where he's a little bit soft from a, from a set piece as well. So it's maybe something t opposition teams have, have identified. Also not surprising that Richarlison scored again, because he's been in excellent form recently. He's got nine goals 
in his last 10 games. Both of his finishes in this match were fantastic. I have never seen a more muted celebration from a player than fr from Richarlison in this game. He looked like he was about to burst into tears. And James Madison comes up to him and is like, come on, you know, give us a bit of a celebration. He kind of shrugs off James Madison. No, I'm really sad about this, James. Well, he scored his second goal against relegation-threatened Everton. Uh, but yeah, it's good to see Richarlison coming good because I've defended him a bit on this show um, before. I can't wait to see him add Big Ange to his uh, giant back tattoo because Postcoglu <laughs> has kind of revived him a bit this season. Hey man, once a toffee, always a toffee, I suppose. Apparently, is how it works for Richarlison. <laughs> Before we move out of the Premier League, do you all hear that noise? Do you hear the noise? It's the Gio Reyna has done something noise, Joe Lowry. <laughs> the We're sounding the, the horn. We're sounding the horn. I don't know if you can hear that in the background. Did I frantically search YouTube to find Viking Horn? Yes, I did. Gio Reyna has made his debut for Nottingham Forest, Joe. I'm assuming you've watched it 40 times? Correct. Also, Taylor, okay. don't lie. You you YouTubed uh, Gio Reyna does something horn sound, and of yes, course, that's of course. the one that came up, because obviously <laughs> that's a real thing that's on YouTube. Um, don't, don't sell yourself short there. I did watch Gio Reyna's cameo for Nottingham Forest. Uh, it wasn't particularly noteworthy, but the fact that he made it his first appearance for Nottingham Forest in their 1-1 draw against Bournemouth does feel noteworthy. Draws are not the worst thing for Forrest right now. The fact that they pick up a point in his debut is, is not a bad thing at all. He comes on with about 15 minutes left in the game and just kind of does the very simple version of Giorena things that we, we expect him to do at a bare minimum in every game. He was strong on the ball. He moved it quickly. He was roaming around the attacking third. Uh, he, he helped Nottingham Forest move the ball with pace as they tried to break Bournemouth down, which is mostly what they were doing at that stage of the game. Obviously, they did not get that late goal to get them a win. But, you know, good to see Giorena getting on the field. And I thought he did enough to, I mean, mix with his pedigree and, and the fact that Forrest wanted him in the first place to warrant more minutes and more cameos and eventually starts moving forward. There we go. Well done to Giorena. Uh, congratulations to him. I won't play the Viking horn again, but I will take us to La Liga, where Real Madrid drew 1-1 to -one with Atletico Madrid in a game that I am confused by, Joe, because uh, Real Madrid scored the opener, looks good. Yep. Uh, to your point about Giorena doing Giorena things, it felt like Real Madrid were doing Real Madrid things, and then Atleti scored in the 93rd minute, I believe, to make this one 1-1. One -one. How are you feeling about this performance from Real? Yeah, soccer is a cruel game, unless you're Atletico Madrid or Girona or Barcelona or any team in the league and not named Real Madrid, in which case it is a glorious game, except for all the times when Real Madrid get on the end of these kinds of results, and then it, it's cruel again. But yeah, Real Madrid were the better team in this game. I don't think you could really watch this match and not think that. Even playing without Vinicius Jr., who was a late scratch due to a, a little injury, uh, they were still efficient and, and sharp on the ball. We saw the same 4-4-2 diamond shape that we've really come to expect from Carlo Ancelotti with the with the forwards really, really wide. I don't know if you guys picked up on this. It's in the diamond shape. Gio Bellingham still playing as a number 10 in that in uh, sort of the tip of the diamond. And Rodrigo and Brahim Diaz were like outside of Atleti's back five at times in this match. They were so wide trying to create this void in the middle for Atleti to sort of not know what to do with. And oftentimes in the final third, it would look like Jude Bellingham crashing into that void to be the aerial threat. I don't know who was on commentary for this game for ESPN, but I had it on for a little bit. And I thought they made a decent point about, you know, Atleti not being too worried about crosses in this game because there's no Hosalud, there's, you know, no other real aerial threat among the front two in this match. 
But Jude Bellingham, lest we forget, is an aerial threat. And I don't mind that approach from Ancelotti about having him sort of be that makeshift number nine in moments. We've seen it all year long. We saw bits and pieces of that from Real Madrid. We saw them you know, threaten in transition because they don't need to have the ball. And we saw them get a little bit fortunate with their wide combos, even pushing their wingers, or excuse me, their strikers out wide to look like wingers in this game. That's how Brahim Diaz gets the first goal. There's a little bit of nice play on the right side. Some crazy deflections that end up with the ball right at the feet of Brahim Diaz, and he puts it in the back of the net. I thought this game was done. You know, as we sort of neared the beginning of the second half, Real Madrid were cruising. They were in control. And Marcus Llorente said, "Mm, I don't think so, and we're going to equalize late on. Yeah, you thought they were done, Joe, as proven by the note in our running uh, (laughs) order that you put before full-time, which is Real Madrid have so many ways to beat you. Well, they could have used one of them in this match. It's still (laughs) true. Let me me drill down. Let me drill down on that, Graham, because it's completely right. Like, I I went through and I was doing some early notes for both this game and the Juve Inter game, and only one of them really fit the narrative of the match, and that's the Juve Inter one that we'll come on to in a bit. Uh, Real Madrid do have a ton of ways to beat you. So they beat you with the wide combos. We saw that early on, even without Vinicius, like putting those forwards really wide and having um, their their fullbacks push up and having Valverde and Tony Kroos kind of push into the half spaces at times, especially Valverde on that right side. It's really, really hard to stop those. And even Atleti, a very good defensive team, had some problems with that. I mentioned Bellingham crashing the box. And then also they're so good in transition. Like Real Madrid don't need to have the ball if they win it back in their own defensive third or even inside their own half, they're coming at you so quickly. And we saw that over and over throughout this game. Atleti may be a little fortunate not to concede the second goal. But Graham, your point is correct because Atletico Madrid did not totally go away in this game. And Real Madrid probably could have used a little bit more to get all three points. Yeah, I agree with your premise, though. Real Madrid um, do have several ways to beat you. And that even extends to the personnel that they can bring into their team. You mentioned them earlier, Joe Brian Diaz, who scores the, the first goal. Not only does he do that, I thought he was the best player on the pitch. And that has actually been the case in a lot of games he's played this season. So you mentioned Vinicius picks up an, an injury in the warm-up. There, um, the story in Spain is that Ancelotti actually puts Hosolu into the starting lineup, hands in the team sheet before the game and then goes back to the referees to say actually no we're going to change that so they had some kind of tactical second thought there with putting Brian Diaz in but the the pockets of space that he picks up the way that he's able to get on the half turn and gets into good goal scoring positions as he did for the Real Madrid goal where he's kind of mopping up a loose ball there were some brilliant pieces of skill from him and and one that he he that led to nearly one of the goals of the season where he's twisting one way and then the other and then the shot just flashes across goal and and wide of the far post. He's been a real surprise for Real Madrid this season where they brought him back from AC Milan where he'd been, I think, on loan for a couple seasons. They brought him back essentially as a body just to have someone there as a depth option. But he is the perfect depth option in that he's versatile. He can play a number of different positions and he doesn't kick off because he's second string and he can have a real influence in games when he comes in so he's been one of the you wouldn't put him on like Bellingham's level or Vinicius's level but as a depth option you need those players if you're going to compete on several fronts and Brahim Diaz has been invaluable for Real Madrid this season so both of you impressed by Brahim Diaz somewhat impressed by Real Madrid somewhat impressed by Atletico Madrid but Joe uh, from a narrative standpoint how grateful are we that Real Madrid had this draw so that we get the uh, the title challenge still on Girona still alive as we get that clash next weekend uh, I thought Brahim Diaz was fine, but Graham loves him enough for both of us. Uh, I, I'm stoked for the for the title race. And the, I mean, come on, the ball ended up right at his foot in the box. It's not like he was working magic to get that goal early on. But 
Um, I, I do I love take a, a lot scoop, of your... Joe. I love a scooped finish. <laughs> That's one of the best kinds of finishes. Fair enough. I'll, I'll give it to you on that one. Uh, I, I am stoked for the title race in La Liga. The fact that Real Madrid are just two points clear of Girona right now. I think we all expect Real Madrid to to probably win that game on Saturday and probably to win this thing by, I don't know, a seven to ten point margin when this whole tournament, when this whole season, excuse me, is done. But the fact that we get a ridiculous Bundesliga clash next week between Bayern Munich and Bayer Leverkusen, the fact that we get this game between Real Madrid and Girona, and I believe the AFCON final is next week as well, uh, my head is going to be exploding with great soccer next weekend. Uh, we also had some great soccer from Barcelona, Graham. Uh, 3-1 to win over Alaves. Is the secret here that uh, Xavi should just keep announcing his resignation and then they'll keep winning? Is that the way to go about getting the results they need? Well, Klopp tried that as well and it didn't work at the end. <laughs> so I anticipate today maybe him just reiterating that he is leaving to you know boost that Liverpool team for the for the end of the season. Uh, yeah, maybe. You could be onto, there, onto something there with, with Xavi. Two wins in a row for Barcelona, which doesn't sound that notable, but stringing wins together has been a problem for them uh, recently. They were the stronger team here, although there were still some shaky moments. There, they could have conceded a penalty in the very first minute. Uh, Samu scored one, could have scored another. There's a, a couple chances for Alves, but Alves are the sort of team that do create opportunities. That's not that unusual, uh, but Barcelona created a lot more. And there are some um, real encouraging signs for Barcelona, at least in terms of the the, the individuals. So Corbasi looks like a decent talent at centre-back uh, in that he's uh, he's not Marcus Alonso, so he's got that going <laughs> for him right from the start. There's a, a great little scoop finish from Lewandowski. I've just established I love a scooped finish, Joe. So Lewandowski uh, looks sort of back to his best. I mean, at the very least, that's that's the the sort of thing that he used to do is are those kind of opportunistic finishes. Lamine Yamal is still incredibly exciting in the midfield was where my eye was drawn for a lot of this game. There's obviously been a lot of focus on that midfield in recent weeks. Andreas Christensen starts as the number six in this game. Now, I don't think that's a long-term solution, but it kind of worked here. And crucially, it allowed Gundogan to push forward, and he was the real difference maker here with the chances that he created and the goal that he scored. And in recent weeks, he's maybe one of only two or three players that have been performing as expected. So getting him into an area where he can have more of an influence on the final third, I think, is important for Barcelona. So it was a rare, encouraging evening for Barcelona, even accounting for the Vitor Roque red card, which... There's just no way that should have been a red card. And Javi wasn't very happy, understandably, about that after the game. I, I don't understand. Is the second yellow, is it called for stamping on him? For treading on know. the player? I'm so, it, it seems like he got uh, fouled and then carded for jumping out of the way a player who was sliding into him. Well, I'm very exactly. confused by that. I can't, I can't quite recall who the Alaves player is that makes the tackle, but whoever it is. Steve Smith. I, I, Steve Smith. Yeah. Steve mm-hmm. Smith of Alaves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, his, Steve's tackle, I thought, was pretty rash and a little bit of a lunge yep. and on the verge of two footed so Vitor Rocky getting a second yellow for that is just absolutely it was a wrong decision I, I mean this sincerely when I watched that I thought for a moment like the ref was being like don't worry Vitor Roque he's getting the yellow card not you <laughs> like I was still feeling, like why is he showing him the yellow I'm confused by this uh I'm less confused about Graham Ruthen's love for the United States. Graham has changed out of the black T-shirt he's wearing into a U.S. jersey. Graham, do you want to do you want to make your own horn for Luca De La Torre? Can you do the sound effect for us real quick? You said clear out everybody. I've got a, a sound effect of my own to do. 
well, what I've done is I've changed. <laughs> that does I've changed sound like out of my, I've changed out of my beige hoodie suit uh, combo, <laughs> and I've put on the stars and stripes hoodie suit combo for this uh, segment. Luca Della Torre, a goal and assist for Celta Vigo, <laughs> thanks Taylor, against Osasuna, an important win for Celta Vigo, uh, which was inspired by by T- Della Torre. The assist is. Um, it's pretty unremarkable. It's a straightforward pass and a breakaway, uh, and then the finish is the notable bit. But the goal is Delatore making a striker's finish to to finish across in the six yard box, which I don't really associate much with Luca Delatore making those runs. He's the furthest forward player making making that run. So the American flag was flying high in La Liga uh, this weekend, albeit near the bottom of the table with Celta Vigo in a relegation battle. But we'll just leave that bit out. Yeah, I'll leave that bit out. Uh, Joe, if you're choosing someone to start in the midfield for the United States, is it uh, LDLT or is it Brendan Aronson, if you have to choose? Oh, um, it depends a little bit on who's around them. Uh, on a blanket level, I would go with De La Torre. Yeah, but right now, I might I might lean a little bit towards Johnny Cardoso, especially with Tyler Adams still being out injured, to squeeze one more American into this segment. Cardoso Joe started and went the full 90. to instructions about <laughs> players on offer. Cool, cool. Just writing that down. I'm just Go sad ahead, that mm-hmm. I didn't get my own horn sound when I first arrived in our, our recording session earlier. Got it. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I take that back. It was great how it was before. Uh, Johnny started and went 90 for Rabatis in their 1-1 draw against Getafe. Uh, I don't have anything more to go on it than that, but it is good that he is getting minutes for Batiste after making that move from Brazil. All right, we're going to take a break. I promise no more sound effects, even though we do have more Americans to discuss when it comes to Serie A. We've still got Afghan with few, a few other bits and bobs as well. Back soon to round everything out. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. 
Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way, because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. We are heading to Serie A where we had Inter get a 1-0 win over Juve. Graham, uh, I admittedly have the brain of a goldfish. So I want that out front before I ask this question. Is this the best performance from Inter this season? I'm sure they've had many good performances. This was the first time I've watched them and thought like, wow, they are an exceptional team and they have got a very good manager behind them. So there was a there was a, a 3-0 win over Lazio maybe mm-hmm. like two or three weeks ago. I watched that game and remember having a similar sort of conclusion at full time that they are just a, a very well-coached team with good individuals that is the same conclusion I had coming away from this match even though the scoreline wasn't as emphatic Uh, by most metrics Inter were the best team so certainly not surprising that they got the the win there was a real early storm from Inter where for the first five to ten minutes Juve are really pegged back and couldn't get out and the intensity from Inter was was really impressive but Juve did weather that storm and they settled into the sort of game that we've come to expect from them this season it's not always the most entertaining game uh, although they have been scoring a few more goals recently but it's a game that's largely about absorbing and then creating either either on the break or um, from set pieces, it almost got them the go-ahead goal through Weston McKenney, who had this incredible surging run over about, like, I don't know, 30 to 40 yards in the first half. And then he fed Dusan Vlaovic, whose first touch was abysmal and the chance completely disappeared in that moment I would have been absolutely furious if I was Weston and then a few minutes later Inter, Inter took the the lead so it was an important moment in the game but yeah Inter are a very um very well coached team they've got good individuals I saw a, 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 an athletic piece by James Horncastle after this that said that called them the most complete team Serie A has seen for a, a number of years I, I, I would go along with that I think Napoli were more exhilarating last season but in terms of front to back quality and how different components yeah. of that team work together yeah I think Inter are setting a precedent we've not seen in Italian football for, for a while I would agree with that uh, I was really impressed by them as I said in the intro but that back line of Pavar, Acerbi and Bastoni Pavar obviously scoring the bicycle kick goal and we don't need to editorialize that he net- totally nailed <laughs> that bicycle didn't at all whiff it entirely he got to admire his ambition he scored that goal in the World <laughs> Cup once for Germany and yeah. or, excuse me for France and um was like, I'm going to score a banger in every single game. And that's how he approaches every single match. That was also a pretty yakety sex uh, goal there as Taram, I think, heads it off of the defender and in whatever it counts. It's still a goal. Uh, but that back line uh, is exceptional. Uh, I, I feel like the martinez Taram relationship has really blossomed where Lautaro Martinez does a really good job of dropping in, playing like quick little one and two touch passes. But some, some of those passes are two yards and some of those passes are 30 yards out wide. Taram seems to understand his positioning really well. And then that midfield three, it's just exceptional. Like Nico Barella has always been a player that I thought was impressive. Henri uh, Mkhitaryan 
sometimes impressive, but in this Inter team, I thought looked very good. And then Hakan Chalanolu at the base of midfield is basically a cheat code. I didn't talk know you could play it, him talk there. Talk about it. Talk about it. That ball. Joe, should we talk about it? Should we <laughs> please, talk about that ball? Please, run, run it through, Taylor, because it is so good. It makes good. no sense. It's a Marco Echeverri-esque ball to bring us back to last week's episode. It is uh, Inter sort of on the counterattack uh, in that they win the ball, they try to counter, but then they sort of recycle possession a little bit, but it ends up with Hakan Chalanolu. Uh, the only player who did not decide that the play was done was DeMarco, um, out playing at left wing back in this one, who, in this sequence at least, who's sprinting down that channel. And Chalanolu hits a ball that it, it like, is straight out of a FIFA video. Like, if you, if you, if somebody hit that in FIFA, you'd think, like, that's ugh, AI. That's so annoying. Like, there's no way that ball could actually happen. It splits. I want to say five different players. It is it is an aerial ball, but it is low enough that like it ends up sort of bouncing through, but it hits him in stride. It is like Tom Brady hitting a receiver, perfect levels of accuracy. I could not get over it, or Chalanolu overall in this game, I thought was just so tidy, so press resistant, so calm on the ball, kept the ball moving, had a few little dribbles to get out of pressure. All of it was uh, immense from Hakan Chalanolu. Oh, so good. That that pass is absolutely unreal. I've been watching it on repeat since yeah, yesterday now. That's on brand. That's uh, until you talk about it splitting a bunch of players, it not only does it split players, or maybe this is the same thing, uh, but it bypasses all 10 UV outfield players from, from where the pass is hit. So there's an oh aerial God. view that's, that's on Syria's official that's social media insane. like Twitter account right now. There's an aerial like almost drone shot. Oh. Chalano is, is uh, how do I phrase this? He is in front of. Good. All oh, okay. of, yeah, good. That works. <laughs> He's in front of when he receives the ball and, and plays the pass. He's in front of all of Juventus's outfield players. You can count them up. There's 10 of them in the frame that you see on this clip. And by the time the ball reaches DeMarco on that left side, he is behind all 10 Juve outfield players. Like, it is absolutely absurd. And, and this is sort of a microcosm of what makes this Inter team so special. They're not without their weaknesses. Chalunulu is not particularly fleet of foot. Megatarian is not really a, a rapid ball winner in that space either. So when they lose control or when they match up against a team that is better on the ball and wrestles that control away from them... They can struggle to keep up in midfield. That is a weak point for this team. I don't think their wingbacks are a truly elite level in Europe right now. I think those are the things that hold them back from being a Champions League, a true favorite in that competition. But when it comes to Italy, like just the pieces make sense. right? You have a Cherby in the middle of the back line, a veteran, 35 years old. You've got Bastoni, who's one of the most aggressive outside center backs in the world. And you have Pavard, who's a converted fullback. And so you have some mobility to couple a Cherby's experience, and there's plenty of games, high-level games played between the three of them total. Then you look in midfield, you have Chalanolu's elite-level distribution, and it has been elite regardless of where he's played and where he's been playing on the field over different stages of his career. Mkhitaryan's a good connector and playmaker as he drifts forward. Tilly, you mentioned the dynamic between the front two. All of the pieces just make sense, and there's a reason why Inter made such a deep run in the Champions League last year. There's a reason why... When we did our European League catch-up, I talked about them as the obvious favorites in what was, at that time, still a two-horse race between Inter and Juve. Now with a four-point lead and a game in hand, so you can maybe add that up to seven, I think this title race is pretty much done. I think Inter are very clearly the best team in Italy, and I think the results are going to continue to reflect that between now and the end of the season. Yeah, I don't disagree. And, and I would add that with Inter, it feels like there is enough ability, technical ability in this team that they can create something from nothing, but they can also score on the break, but they can also score through sustained possession. They can get some from set pieces. It feels like they have a variety of ways to attack. And I say that to spotlight Juve for a moment, because I thought this was a really 
depressing is maybe too strong, but just like a bummer of a performance from Juve that they have so much possession in the second half, but all of that possession felt just very static or very much like, okay, we've got to reset the possession system until we can get a shooting opportunity. Oh, we got to reset it again. And there were just so many needless back passes. Uh, they complete over 400 passes. They have one shot on target, Joe's favorite number, an XG of 0.66. It's just... They don't create much. And and though, as the game goes on, they're making attacking changes. I thought Chiesa and Tim Weah honestly brought a, a different level of energy, but not a greater chance of attack. It just felt like when they did have chances, it was with Inter having a lot of numbers behind the ball in central, so nothing really looked that threatening. When they would get a few opportunities on the break, it was still... Not enough numbers committed forward, not, a lo- not enough sort of confidence in the way they wanted to attack. And I think this is very much a fair yeah. result. It had me concerned about Max Allegri and Juve, put it that way. And the, the commentators on, on, on the British feed of this game were giving Juve a lot of credit for a lot of their defensive actions. There was a good number of last-ditch tackles by Juve in this game. One from Danilo on Turam, another from Bremer. And they, w- they were incredible uh, moments. I'm not sure that's the sign of a team in control of their own performance, as if you're hanging on with like three or four last-ditch tackles to prevent clear sights and goal for the opposition team. So I agree, Taylor. The scoreline, I thought the end scoreline flattered UV in in the end. I thought this was a comfortable win for for Inter. I even thought Inter, they might even have another gear to go to, as good as they were in this match. Certainly in in an attacking sense, that partnership between Turam Mm -hmm. and Lutaro, which at this point has to be one of the best strike partnerships anywhere in Europe. So difficult to defend against where one will drop deep and the other spins behind. But often when you get a partnership like that, I think of Harry Kane and and Son Heung-min, it was always Kane dropping deep and Son going in behind. So as a defender, there was a predictability there. You couldn't always stop it, but there was a predictability there. With Taram and Lataro, they take it in turns. One drop deep, drops deep, the other spins in behind. Then the next time it's Lotaro dropping deep, Taram going in behind. Taram's got physicality. Martinez has got um, knows how to take up good goal-scoring positions. He's mobile. I, I think those two players, Joe's talking about, and he's right, there are weaknesses in this entertainment with individuals, but those two players are the difference makers. If you get those two players in top form, that's the kind of thing that in the Champions League could actually make a difference for Inter, could make them in contenders again this season. And if you don't have Marcus Taram, you then have Marko Arnautovic, who is fine, but also will hit a point-blank shot directly at the goalkeeper when he definitely should have scored. Uh, sorry, Joe, I know you don't like that phrase either, but Arnautovic should have scored. And I'm going to leave it that's there. Quite, that's quite a drop-off, isn't it? Marcus Taram, uh-huh. Lataro Martinez, Marko Arnautovic? Hey, but at one least, of those guys is, is the odd one out. Yeah. One, one of them is not like the other two. At least he has uh, no baggage that he brings with him wherever he goes. Let's mm, go to yeah. AFCON, shall we? Yes. Where Joe is feeling conflicted. Because on the one hand, Nigeria get a 1-0 win, and Joe has been backing Nigeria uh, all tournament long in a way that Graham Ruffin has not. Uh, But Angola, Joe, a team that I think had had sort of grown on you, now eliminated. Are you happier or are you sadder by this result? I mean, it's fun to be right, so I'm probably more happy than I am sad. But I'm still a bit bummed that we lost uh, Angola for their performances, especially in the group stage. They are one of the many incredible stories at this competition so far. Just sort of the things that we talked about with them being a problem ended up being a problem. So it is Angola not really being able to deal with Nigeria breaking out into open space, them losing those 1v1 battles across their back line. That leads to the goal from Lookman in the 41st minute. It's Simon, I believe, who has the assist there breaking down that left side. 
Like, they just couldn't handle Angola, the individual quality of Nigeria's attackers. And that's without Victor Osimhen getting on the score sheet. He still has just one goal in this entire tournament. And it came in their very first game of the competition. Can't really help still despite that scoring drought. I can't really help but feel like he is going to make a statement in the semifinals for Nigeria. Still, they were the better team in this game. I expect they will get the win against South Africa. I expect they'll be in the final, but we'll talk plenty more about that later this week. They were better, and I was a little surprised, frankly. Not um, disappointed from a neutral's perspective, but I was surprised at how willing Angola were to step forward and really play. They left themselves a little exposed and behind. There was a little bit of that on the goal, and, and there were plenty of other chances that didn't get converted in this match from Nigeria. Their front three Angola was still dangerous. Gilberto is threatening on the right side. Mabalulu has become one of my favorite players at the competition. It's a shame that he is done in the ninth spot, and then Gelson is, is, continues to be a promising player on that left side as well. Um, but, I mean, Nigeria were always the favorites in this game. I don't think any of us are shocked that they got the job done. Uh, I obviously always thought they had a very strong defense and had no concerns about it at all. But, Graham, I know that you felt differently. About their defense <laughs> yes. before the start of the yes. tournament. Am I getting dug out again? Uh, I mean, yes. In the sense that I, I was very much like, I don't know. I think they're going to lose every game. They might not be very good. Yeah. I think we're both in the same boat, is I guess what I'm saying. Yeah, so this has been the AFCON of shocks, and uh, while Nigeria making the semi-finals isn't a, a shock, the way that they've got there has been a, a, a big surprise for me. Not so much after like two games when I saw how they were going to set up, um, but they just look like a very strong tournament team, and the way that they entered the tournament amid so much chaos and their form was, when we did the previews, their form was really quite poor. I didn't expect them to become this team at all. At this point, it would it really wouldn't surprise me if they went all the way. Um, the changes that they have made going to the back three, the 3-4-3, three, three. Um, even though as an attacking outfit, they've, it feels like they've not quite unleashed Osimhen and, and and even Lukman, who's had a good tournament, and, and Moses Simon, I know they combined for the goal here, feels like they've got another level to get to. It just feels like they're stable, Nigeria, and that is a shock. That is a shock to me. So I'm counting that amongst the like Cap Verde run to the semifinals and Mauritania. In that list is Nigeria being competent and stable and a good tournament team. Uh as long as we're confused by things, Graham, uh, the only quarterfinal game I did not watch was DR Congo 3, Guinea 1. Uh, DR Congo getting the win, uh, but going 1-0 down, then scoring three goals unanswered. Uh, I believe they had like 4% of possession, not 37% of possession, uh, but had a higher XG than Guinea. C- can you make it make sense for as a person who watched this game? Make it make sense. Well, incidentally, all four teams, uh, spoiler alert here, but all four teams that had more possession in these quarterfinal ties mm-hmm. ended up losing yeah. and, and, and going out. Obviously, possession doesn't equate to uh, winning or, or attacking prowess. But anyway, it's kind of notable. Arsene, you don't Arsene often Wenger see that across, yeah. <laughs> across the tournament. You don't quite see that uniformity. Uh, but this was generally, to my eye anyway, the performance we've been waiting for, for uh, from DR Congo at this tournament, who hadn't won a match in 90 or even 120 minutes at this tournament before. For this game, I thought it was a fantastic response from DRC going behind when Bio put Guinea ahead from the spot, as you mentioned, Taylor. And this this was a, les- a lesson in how you can still be the better team without having the, ma- the majority share of possession. Because much like Nigeria against Angola, DRC were quite happy for Guinea to have the ball because it allowed them to get forward quickly. And DRC do have players who can carry the ball, as uh, Mvumpa did for the, the penalty to put them 2-1 ahead. Masuaku and Kalulu were both impressive in the, in the fullback position so if DRC are able to give themselves that space to burst into against Ivory Coast in the semi-finals they will have a good chance of winning that because they have quality in in that sense Joe in our running order 
you have is, is in this game yeah one of the goals of the tournament in this game yes are you talking about the Masuaku free kick are you Absolutely. talking about the, uh, the Masuaku free kick do you think course. he means it though is it not uh, a squaff it looks like he means it to me so the way that I always come back to thinking about these kinds of goals let me set the stage first and I'll get to that in a second left back Arthur Masuaku playing for Besiktas at, at club level hits this game ceiling free kick finish in the 82nd minute makes it 3-1 DR Congo are through at this point it's a great moment for them it is a left-footed strike from if you drew... So imagine the field right in your mind. If you drew a horizontal line from the top of the box, top of Guinea's box, all the way out to the left sideline. Like it is two or three feet to the right of the left sideline, horizontally even to the top of the box. And Masuaku, Masuaka, excuse me, steps up and hits this ridiculous left-footed shot. It just dips right into the top left-footed, uh, top left corner of the goal. I, I had down in my notes, I think this is intentional because the goalkeeper for Guinea is waiting on the other side. Like, like he is waiting on the left side from his perspective of the goal, assuming that Masuaka is going to play a left-footed outswinging cross into the box, and there's going to be some play that comes on that side. He's not concerned about Masuaka going straight for the goal at all. I think this is intentional. I'm not going to die on this hill, but it was awesome. Like, as a finish, it was absolutely awesome. It's one of those things that if you did it 100 times, even as a pro you would miss probably 99.9 times out of 100. It is an incredible finish and an incredible moment for DR Congo, who are making one of the shock runs of the tournament so far. Joe, what was more impressive, that goal or Ronwin Williams in the shootout for South Africa? Uh, I got to go with Ronwin Williams because I think there is probably a little more skill, like repeatable skill involved there, even though I, I am backing that as an intentional finish. South Africa, unbelievable in this penalty shootout against Cape Verde. A pretty forgettable game, to be honest, which is sad because Cape Verde have been so fun and Taylor, I know that you love them so much. Like There wasn't a ton of, of really clear-cut attacking joy for either team in this match. And so it ends up going to the penalty kick shootout. And Ronan Williams was the hero. He earned the spot in that introduction, Taylor. He guesses right on the first three straight penalties for the uh, for, for Kate Verd in this game. And he dives to his right on all three, gets it right on all three. Then Kate Verd scored their fourth penalty. And then Ron Williams guess, guesses right on the fifth penalty kick from Kate Verd. And that is the game-winning save. Um, talk about a, a legend and a legendary performance. South Africa and Ron Williams advance to the semifinals. It, he, Taylor, you're the penalty shootout mm -hmm. king here, right? Four saves in a in a shootout that doesn't go on to like mm -hmm. keepers taking it just a, a standard penalty shootout i can't recall a keeper making four saves before can you nor can i no absolutely not and he had done his research someone had done the research because as joe said he goes right for all four saves obviously he goes correctly for the one that is made too by Teixeira. it's just a perfect penalty it's well hit it's into the side netting if it is not exactly where it is that one gets saved i think as well so the way he's able to I guess just back himself, and I love that all of the first three are to the exact same spot is is kind of ridiculous. I don't know if his cheat sheet that he had on his water bottle just said, they're all going to the exact same spot, just dive the same <laughs> way every time. But Dive uh, right, stupid. <laughs> yeah, that's it, every, for every single one. Uh, so, not great from Kaffeerd. I mean, not really great from South Africa either. They, they have two misses of their own. Uh, one off the bar, one is saved. And the one that's saved from uh, Modiba... I believe it is, is is maybe the worst penalty of the entire shootout, but all the same, they advance. So credit to South Africa and Ronwin Williams for that. Credit to Ivory Coast for just a ridiculous tournament and a ridiculous finish. Uh, they get a 2-1 to win over Mali with a very much last-minute uh, goal off of a sort of like reverse instep little flick uh, from 
from Diakite. Uh, he runs off to celebrate, takes his shirt off, forgetting he already had a yellow card, so he gets a second yellow. He forgetting or off. not caring. I, I, probably honestly, that. either way, right? Probably that. Probably that. Maybe should have cared, because now he's out Correct. for the next round. Uh, Odalam Kasonu also sent off earlier in the game. Uh, Serge Aurier <laughs> picks up a yellow card, so he will be suspended. Ivory Coast win. I think they've got some some problems to figure out. Yeah. I think that's a good kind of problem to have. There's a mess penalty as well, isn't there? Yep. Or, or, yep. or so that is this game, isn't it? It is this game. Wow. I have the full chaos timeline down in my notes. Taylor, you had a lot of the, the headlines, but I want to go through the whole thing. Uh, first, ridiculous game in a ridiculous tournament, which has been awesome and maybe one of the greatest international tournaments of all time. I'm willing to go out there and, and maybe plant my flag in that particular piece of ground. Molly earned a penalty kick 15 minutes or so into this game after Kosonu has a, a handball. Joe, and, may I jump yes, in really Taylor, quickly just to do. say, if we're going full chaos, there's also the moment before that in the eighth minute where there are <laughs> two potential penalty shouts, one for a handball, one for physicality, and it ends up uh, looks like it's going to be given for the handball. Uh, the ref goes to VAR, but VAR is actually telling us that he, the player was offside, and so that's why none of this really matters. Sure. But I only interrupt because that was another little chaotic moment, but no, also please. because the commentator did not pay attention to the, the the gesture for offside and just paid attention to the point, leading to the maybe my favorite save of all the saves we've talked about so far, when he said, the referee has pointed to the spot and it is a penalty, not to Molly is, what, is, how he, is how he turned that around. was an amazing bit of work by him. Um, so that was great. And then, Joe, we get the actual penalty. Oh, my. That's so good. That is so good, Taylor. I love that moment. Great catch. So you, you have this penalty kick that Molly earned off of that Kosanu handball, which is relevant for later. And Yahia Fofana, Ivory Coast goalkeeper, makes the save. And let's not forget, this tournament is in the Ivory Coast. So not only was this a chaotic game on the field, but the atmosphere was insane. Like, it came across really well on some otherwise low-quality broadcasts. And you could tell how hyped the crowd was, that they're still level after 15 minutes. Then, towards the end of the first half, Kosonu is sent off. So that leaves the Ivory Coast with 10 men. We've talked a bit about that already. Uh, then you have... Uh, just an absolutely absurd goal from Nene Dorgelis, who scores a banger with his right foot from 25 yards out, you know, sort of into the top right corner in the 71st minute. It's a goal for Mali. It puts them 1-0 up in their biggest game in quite some time. And he doesn't celebrate. Why? Because yeah. he was born in the Ivory Coast. So we talked about a lack of celebration <laughs> well, parents, earlier. It wasn't even him. It was his parents are born in the Ivory oh, Coast. Oh, that's right. That's right. So he's got citizenship along the way. Like, this is ridiculous. He has ties to the Ivory Coast, doesn't celebrate. You know, whatever you want to do, it's fine. doesn't matter to me. But crazy that that moment for Mali, what feels like it's going to send them into the semifinals of this tournament, doesn't result in any sort of goal celebration. Then we flip our focus back to the Ivory Coast for a second because they're not going out without a fight. Just when you're getting tired of Seca Fofana long shots, just me? Okay, maybe just me. Uh, one of his many, nope. many, many wasted long-range efforts, and there have been many, was blocked. And a Dingra pops up and finishes the loose ball in the 90th minute. That makes it 1-1. We're going to extra time, folks. Huzzah, just what we all wanted. Actually, in this game, it kind of was. And then it happens again for Seca Fofana. Another really poor decision from a long shot from the Ivory Coast in the 122nd minute, gets another deflection, and Diakite gets a touch on it, and somehow the ball is in the back of Molly's net. 2-1, game was basically over, not before two more red cards. It's, I, I cannot even imagine how ridiculous this game would have been to play in. So many red cards, so many things going so many different directions. Uh, I felt like I was in a fever dream watching it. It was awesome. Yeah. And then, and then you add the context, sorry Taylor, just very quickly, you add the context of everything that's happened before this game. I think if Ivory Coast win this thing now, it will be one of the most incredible tales of a team 
winning an international tournament ever in history. They've absorbed so many blows. They've been close to the brink so many times. They've sacked their manager, replaced him with a manager who's never managed before this tournament. They had their heaviest ever defeat to Equatorial Guinea in the final group stage, scraped through to the, the knockout rounds. Their best attacker has been injured for the whole tournament and is still basically injured and is only coming off the bench in games as a kind of Hail Mary. And yet they're still into the final four of this tournament where, by the way, as you kind of referenced, they'll now have is it three or four players, key players suspended three at least, yeah. for this match. It's just a crazy story. <laughs> it, absolutely a crazy story and a wonderful story at that. To Joe's point about feeling like this was a fever dream, it was not helped by the fact that I think the commentary cut out for the last couple minutes and it comes back in, but in the process, this was maybe a be an exclusive sort of moment. The studio host yep. tried to take over uh, because there's just silence. So he starts narrating it, but then the feed comes back in. And the, and so you have two different commentators telling you two different like post-game wrap-up sort of things as celebrations are happening. And my favorite part becomes the studio host then clearly just starts listening to the to the commentator and repeats the same stuff. So it'll be like, what? what a story for a team that scraped through in the group stage. And this is, of course, the team that scraped through in the group stage. Like, it really was. It was just this weird, like... Like an English what? translation of English. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And it was so strange to hear. Like, because it was like a two-second delay, and then he would say a summarized version of what that guy had just said. Uh, and it really did add to the full-on chaos feeling of this game. Uh, this is my favorite game of the weekend. It was probably my favorite game of the entire tournament, just for how wild things truly got i have no idea what will happen in that semi-final uh because as we said there are multiple players suspended but it is nigeria south africa and then we've got ivory coast versus uh dr congo who knows what's going to happen but we know that we will be back to talk about those games and more uh, on thursday those games are on wednesday i do believe uh grant before we go uh we've got a little international business let's start with inner miami just having a good old time <laughs> yeah, Inter Miami's preseason is uh, is going well. They failed to score in their first two games. Lost to FC Dallas. Lost to Al Halal. Got thumped six 0 by Al Al Nasser. Uh, then they went to Hong Kong to play at the weekend. Packed out a stadium, all there to see Lionel Messi. Lionel Messi did not play. He has got an injury, which uh, and it's preseason, right? So I don't know how much the results actually matter. But it certainly matters that Lionel Messi has got an injury with the start of the season uh, just around the corner. And there were fans shouting and protesting and de de demanding refunds. And it was all... Uh, uh, a bit toxic. So, yes, it is just pre-season, but uh, I'm not sure Inter Miami are going to pitch up for the start of the, the new MLS season in a nice, relaxed frame of mind. It's all been a little bit farcical, and I think they're now off to Tokyo, so we'll see how that game goes. I, I like to think that those fans were really angry, but then they saw that Julian Gressa was playing, and they're like, oh, it's fine. <laughs> it, like, a, a drafted player getting to make an impact, we're good with it. I'm assuming that's how that went down. Well, Joe, Joe would accept that compensation, mm -hmm. but I'm not entirely sure fans in Hong Kong <laughs> did or would. Joe pursing his lips and nodding tells me that, yes, he would accept that one. And I'm not mad at it. Uh, before we before we conclude this review, Graham, you do not have to go to Arlington, which is probably good for you because the residents of Arlington seem to have not enjoyed your thoughts on their fair city. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> have, have you had ma many messages? I don't know. Have I been shielded from the Arlington rage? I think, I think has, you, you uh, just got. I think there were some people. In the, you you went back and forth with some people in the Discord about uh, oh about yeah, it, that's right? right, yeah, which was basically just like yeah. it is a great place, and you're like, yeah, I'm not saying it's not a fine place to live. I'm saying that when you want international spectacle and 
this global sporting event, Arlington, Texas, is not maybe the place that you want that to conclude. To be which fair, Graham New Jersey, New Jersey might not yeah. exactly fit that bill either. <laughs> How dare you? Um, How but dare here we you? Are. Uh, I did hey, love- Joe, I am looking I'm looking forward to going to a mall and then a water park before the World Cup final in 2026. Graham, if you think we're getting tickets to the World Cup final, you're yeah. out of your mind. Yeah. But um, you're welcome <laughs> to hit the water park in the mall if, if you would like to. Joe, I love uh, really, really emphasizing this. Uh, Greg Berhalter talking about it. It's going to be a special World Cup to have the final in New York, New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's really what he did. To have the final in New York, New Jersey is a dream come true for me. Uh, being from that area, I'm not sure if that's New York or New Jersey, I'm sure most people from that area. It's an area with a rich tradition of soccer and producing players. Berhalter obviously paid by the number of times he said area in a paragraph. Uh, so congratulations to him for getting that payday. And he's, he's got- from New Jersey. He's from New Jersey there as we well. Go. Like there's, there's okay. a whole bunch there of US MNTers who are from New Jersey. I don't remember who it was on Twitter, and I apologize. Somebody was saying that there's like a marketing agreement between New York and New Jersey where they split the costs associated with these things. And so that's why in all of the branding that's coming out from FIFA and then it gets picked up, you're seeing New York, New Jersey, because New York are also putting footing part of the bill for this whole thing. I don't know how much of that is true, but that did seem like a pretty reasonable explanation to me. Um, but also, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. How much do we Phoenix, think? Those, be uh, Phoenix, ten- let's be honest. <laughs> how much do we think those ten dollar nachos that I was talking about last week on listener questions at MetLife Stadium are going to cost at the World Cup final? Sorry, Graham, you said the sixty five dollar nachos. That's what I. That's what I <laughs> I just want the Metro Stars to come back. Is that too much to ask? Bring me back the New York, New Jersey Metro Stars and have them play in the World Cup final with Bastian Schweinsteiger captaining them. It all comes full circle. (laughs) Graham Ruthven, thank you very much for going long today to talk about the many, 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 many games that were worth talking about from this past weekend. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. And Joe Lowry, the same to you, but in an abbreviated way. Horn! (laughs) Listeners, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Horn. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.